the FBI doesn't go with gut feelings a lot. We go with, we, <laughs> we're very much on the facts. You know, there's that old two, two, two white guys, frankly, in fedoras from the 1950s, some movie. Just the facts, you know, a woman they're interviewing as a witness is giving her opinions. Like, man, just the facts, just the facts, man. It becomes right. kind of a tagline. Um, and, but it's very much the FBI. Our FBI is very much about facts. And so we had, we had, we had three individuals I write about in the chapter called Runaway. So I'm most the, the chapter I'm most proud about is is this chapter called Runaway because it talks about two different sets of defectors who the the the, the one who defected in 1980 well late 80s had a very very he he had heard that the, the Cubans had been successful in recruiting two women, which of course now is Ana Montez and Martin Velasquez. Welcome to Season 3 of Insightful Inquiries, where we discuss intelligence, the military, and current events with thought leaders from across the world. This month, we are joined by Peter Lapp, whose career has been entwined with the shadows of international intrigue. His latest literary work, The Queen of Cuba, which was released in November of 2023, has captivated readers worldwide. Mr. Lapp retired as a special agent for the FBI after 22 years investigating and managing counterintelligence research involving Cuba, Russia, and China. Before joining the FBI, he worked as a police officer in the Coatesville and West Whiteland Police Departments in Pennsylvania. He earned his bachelor's in criminal justice at Westchester University and his master's in criminal justice at St. Joseph's University. He served several years in the Army National Guard as an infantry officer. After retiring from the FBI, Mr. Lapp founded an independent consulting firm and conducts keynote speaking to help organizations mature their insider risk programs. Mr. Lapp's unparalleled expertise positions him as the perfect guide to unravel the mysteries that unfold behind closed doors and shape the geopolitics of our time. So, fasten your seatbelts and get ready for a captivating ride through the corridors of power, secrets, and strategic maneuvers as we sit down with the brilliant Peter Lapp on Insightful Inquiries. All right, welcome. I want to welcome Peter Lapp to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, man. Uh, yeah, and I, I just really appreciate the quick turnaround on this. I know I, I emailed you, and you were so gracious to to do this really quickly. And I think that's a testament to who you are as a person. You're just such a generous person. But I would you. love you to introduce yourself, tell everybody who you are, what you've done in your past. And I always say why you are important, and a lot of people don't like to see me saying that because they don't feel that they are important. But but in that description, it will be why you are important and why you're important to, you know, counterintelligence and espionage. Well, I'll give you the the synopsized uh, history. I won't tell you who my third grade teacher was and what, I, what my grades were. I uh, so I was I'm a retired FBI agent. I spent 22 years as an FBI agent from 1998 until just before the pandemic. And I worked the majority of my career at the Bureau in counterintelligence, um, not a discipline that I went into the FBI looking to work. I frankly don't think I knew what counterintelligence was, even at Quantico, because it wasn't really national security training pre-9-11 included counterintelligence, counterterrorism, cyber, all these things in one day maybe a day and a half. And then the rest wow. was 
how do you investigate a bank robbery? How do you, you know, do three or twos and all that stuff? So um, I did, I did, I worked Cuba uh, for about seven years, both on the counterintelligence side and the counter espionage side. And there's a distinction there to a degree. And then worked a, a little bit of Russia, worked a lot of China when it came to economic espionage and espionage. And then did some, uh, did a detail at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence under General or Director Jim Clapper, however you want to refer to him. Really good guy. Really enjoys working at the DNI and getting the bigger picture of things. And then uh, retired and, and uh, was a street cop before I got in the FBI outside of Philadelphia. Go birds. Um, and spent five years on the street just, just as a local police cop, you know, responding to this and that and the other thing. And I was also a flight cop i actually have a baseball card which is that's you know that's how cool i am i have my own <laughs> except except i have one and it's it's encased in one of those baseball card things and i have no more i don't i don't know where they that just lost them after almost oh god almost 30 years and uh and now i so now i work uh, i'm a contractor for the department of defense really enjoying working for called the Defense Insider Threat Management Center, DITMAC, and uh, was stood up after the Navy Yard shooting. And then my group, the Behavioral Threat Analysis Assessment Center, there's so many acronyms with DOD. I, yeah. <laughs> Forgive me when, if I butcher something. We were stood up after January 6th. Ironic, today's the anniversary. And we look to help insider threat programs within the Department of Defense assess risk for, for insider threats and, and give them some subject matter expertise, if you will. So, but my claim to fame is Ana Montes, and that is uh, what was a career case for me professionally. <clears throat> and obviously, you know, I've been talking about her for for now over twenty years because she was arrested ten days after nine eleven. And and there's a lot of people that deserve credit for Ana being identified, being investigated, arrested, prosecuted, all of that. It's not just the Pete Lapp show. That's it's the FBI, DIA, the NSA show, and one other agency that actually has to be redacted. So we won't give them any credit, shout <laughs> out, but a whole lot of people deserve credit for, for her um, and her arrest. Awesome. Well, that's the perfect segue to what we're going to talk about in this podcast, right? Because we are going to talk about Ana Montes and who Ana Montes is. And um, you did leave out, as a humble person, uh, a very important part of who you are. You are the author of The Queen of Cuba, which is the what Ana Montes was known as, correct? Her nickname among uh, her colleagues was, was Queen of Cuba. And... Uh, it was something I latched on to very early on when I when I decided to write the book. I appreciate you mentioning the book. I'm very proud of it. It's out now. It was released in November. And I've received a lot of very, very complimentary uh, reviews and comments from people that I know. The, the worst review I have is there's no index. And, <laughs> and that's and, that's got to be somebody in the DOD that has. To. I don't, I mean, it's just, and it, they are true. There's no index. It's you know, <laughs> you can you can blame my publisher. I guess I don't know. I've never done this before, but you know, you're right. There's no index. You're gonna have to read the whole <laughs> book and take notes and scribble on you know yellow papers and all sorts of stuff. You also can't control F a book 
Uh, no, it's no, hard. No, I mean, just read the whole damn thing and then and then yeah. highlight what you're what you're looking for. I don't know. It's a quick read. It's it's uh, I meant to write it in a way where it was relevant to folks that work in the field that, that require a clearance. You know, we were talking before the interview started about the annual security training. She's obviously one of the poster children for what not to do. But I also wanted to write it for a broader audience and uh, have a bigger message than just uh, people that work in government and in the intelligence community. So very proud. Of it. Very proud. Of it. Well, full disclosure, I've not had a, a chance to read it yet. I am heading out to Nellis tomorrow, so I'm I'm looking to pick it up and and probably read through it while I'm doing training out there. That'd be great because I am you. very fascinated uh, about this. Like I, like you had alluded to before we started recording. This was part of my annual training. You know, it was Robert Hansen, Anna Montas, uh, and I go back 2001. It, October of 2001 is when I signed up. People who listen to this podcast know that my <laughs> I didn't sign up because of 9-11. It just happened okay. and I was going through the process. 9-11 happened, and I reiterated to my recruiter that I still want to sign up and go. But I want to kind of start from the very beginning with with Anna Montes and she was she she was not within the she wasn't military right but her right. family she had family members that were in the military her father was a commissioned officer in in the army it, it, in and in and out he was a psychiatrist by profession and um he he wasn't at, there wasn't active duty his whole time i think he may have done some time and then maybe became a reservist um, so she was actually born um, on a military base in Germany because her father was was deployed overseas. And uh, that's the only military family member that I'm aware of. That being said, her brother retired as an FBI agent and mm -hmm. uh, honorably, and her sister retired as an FBI translator honorably. So she had a, she had family within the family, not, that, not just the FBI family, but the uh the you know Department of Defense uniformed uniform part of the family. And so, how did she get involved with the DIA? With the sorry Defense Intelligence Agency? I have to remember, like you, that there's a ton of acronyms, and not everybody knows those right. acronyms. Well, it was after she met the Cubans, and and it was a pivotal point because until she met the Cubans, her goal was not to go work in the intelligence community. In fact, it was the farthest thing, furthest thing from her mind. She was going to go work for Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch after she 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 finished her graduate work at Johns Hopkins University, SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies in D.C., a very prestigious uh, graduate program, very expensive. And and when she meets the Cubans and and they ask her to help with a translating project. And she meets them through a, a, a fellow student who's who's also American, who obviously already had a relationship with the Cubans, and a woman named Marta Velasquez. Um, that's when she decided to go to DIA, um, and and really didn't target them per se in terms of like, hey, the Cubans want me to go to DIA or I want to go to DIA. She just she didn't want to go to the CIA. She despised who they were, what their mission was, and what they were doing. Especially in El Salvador, Nicaragua was part of the motivation that, that caused her to commit espionage. But but she kind of shotgunned her resume out, and uh, she was she told us 
and this is no disrespect to DIA. She said, I, I was surprised at how easy it was for me hmm. to get hired by DIA. But with that being said, you know, she's an intelligent, very intelligent person, a uh, graduate of the University of Virginia and Johns Hopkins and very, very smart. You know, and obviously in 1985, um, the DOD struggles with diversity and, and certainly back in 1985, that was a, a definitely a struggle. So she, being a fluent Spanish speaker, I mean, was 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 a very very attractive candidate for any any government agency to to hire. So that's uh, but but got in at DIA relatively quickly and relatively easy. And yeah, and that was at the I mean, you said eighty five. That's what the the height of the Red Scare. Communism is the big bad wolf. And so she, I'm guessing she had some trepidations about the Reagan administration. A Can lot. you kind of give a, like a, a historical background on what was happening in Nicaragua, uh, in El Salvador, that she was opposed to? Yeah, so if you think back to Iran-Contra and Ali North, who's literally a neighbor of mine, he lives probably two, three miles. And I see him at the Starbucks every once in a while. And he, by the way, he orders a latte and he drives a Toyota. I'm not making a judgment. He's a very, I've, I've enjoyed talking to him from time <laughs> to time, but he he drinks lattes and he drives a Toyota really? Forerunner. And he drinks Starbucks. And, he yeah. drinks Starbucks, <laughs> right. It's like, um, you know, very, very uh, personable guy and a historic figure. And, and Iran-Contra, so we were supporting the Contras in El Salvador, Nicaragua using Green Berets and Delta Force and, and the CIA, you know, fighting this guerrilla war. Uh, I grew up in, uh, graduated high school in 1988, and the Joshua Tree by U2, a big music fan and musician. The Joshua Tree, I think that dropped in 86, and the song, Bullet in the Blue Sky, it's got oh, the yeah. beginning intro where Larry Larry Mullins Jr., the drummer, is do, do, do. You 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 guys know the song that is about else and and the edge is making sounds with his guitars that sound like missiles. It is about the war in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and and therefore in that time frame, it was a very controversial foreign policy. Reagan was trying to stop the advancement of communism in Latin America and and doing doing that in a way that. Was was public. Iran Contra wasn't public, but obviously our support of the Contras was very public and debated in academic circles and all sorts of uh, you know areas in in that time frame. Um, and she voiced vehement opposition to. You know, our attitude was, "How dare the United States intervene in El Salvador and Nicaragua and and try to dictate." Maybe dictate not the right word. Try to influence how the people of El Salvador should be governed, and how the people right. of Nicaragua should be governed. And you see this theme of hers with Puerto Rico. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of your your conversation, but she 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 kind of has this similar theme. You know, have we ever asked the Cuban people how they want to be governed? Uh, yeah, we're not really allowed to because there's that thing called a totalitarian regime that right. really tells them how they're going to be governed. And, you know, 
she stands for for Puerto Rican independence, which is not, you know, that's that's a legitimate debate that we can have. I don't have a problem with, with having that discussion, but she attitude is the United States inputs itself in places in the world that that it doesn't have a need to. And that really becomes the driving force for her to commit espionage. So it's more of an anti-American versus um, I'm pro-Cuban. I don't know that she would see herself as being necessarily pro-Cuban. I think it's more, you know, 60, 65% anti-American, maybe 30, 35, 40% you know, aligned with Cuba, um, but definitely more more anti-American, in my opinion. Yeah, and and so this was something that you've said that I, I really latched onto in listening to some of your conversations with other people about this, because when you think about ideology and you think about Cuba and, and supporting Cuba and the ideology of Cuba, you're thinking communism, socialism, but you say she wasn't really a socialist or a communist. No. She was, a, I would say, a humanitarian. A... Yeah, I mean, she's described herself at least in our debriefings. You know, in in when Steve McCoy, my partner, and I would talk to her, you know, just the three of us. And at times there were other people that would come and go, but he and I were were kind of the lead debriefers, as as having been partners in the investigation. You know, equals. She called herself a citizen of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, which which is kind of. I, I actually, you know, I don't really understand what that means <laughs> even 20 <laughs> years later. Like, so where do you get a passport for that? I don't, I don't understand. Like, it, you know, it, and it's, it's, it's kind of sad because I think that, you know, most Americans see themselves as American or most English, you know, British people consider themselves Brits and, and, and so on down the line. And to be, Someone who just doesn't see herself as a citizen of the United States, but more of this esoteric kind of loose, I, I, I'm a citizen of the world. I'm a free agent, if you will. It's kind of sad because, you know, then where do you belong? Like, where what, where do you belong in 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 a country? Like, if, you know, even people, and I, I get, you know, look at the Irish Americans or folks that, that are born near. I was born in Camden and a lot of my family is Irish. And my brother's huge, you know, flies an Irish flag. And it's like, dude, you, you've never even been to Ireland. <laughs> but, but he sees himself as an American, but he's got the Irish ethnicity and the Irish, you know, history. So I, I'm okay with that. I understand all that. But, you know, to be a citizen of the world is kind of confusing to me. Do you, so I'm getting away from, we'll come back to this, but I, just a real question, real quick question here. Do you think that's uniquely American? This uh, I identify as where my ancestors are from, but I also identify as American, so Irish American. I'm I'm French American. I'm from Cajun country in Louisiana, so we we are Acadians. We are French, yeah. and I've been all over the world, and I don't think I've noticed anywhere else where you will see someone in their car flying the French flag or flying the, you know, El Salvadorian flag within their car and they identify as both. And that's maybe a great, that's a uniquely American thing. That's a great question. I probably, as I've traveled, like we were in France for, for in August for about a week. And in Paris, there were a lot of, um, I want to say Algerian, perhaps North Africa, mm-hmm. 
you know, taxi drivers and, and one guy in particular were stuck in traffic and I talked to him and he was going through an Algerian neighborhood and he was shouting out to people that he, that he knew. And, and I guess it was an opportunity I could have asked him like, so, so do you identify as Algerian or do you self-identify more as French or, you know, and, and maybe he would say, uh, you know, kind of Algerian and I'm, I'm here because of X, Y, and Z reasons perhaps, but I don't want to, I don't want to put words in this. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's generally, you look at the Italians, the Italians look at themselves in terms of regional, you know, mm-hmm. the Tuscany folks are different than the Abrezio folks that are different from this, you know, and they're, and they definitely, so, so maybe it's not uniquely American. Maybe it's more of uh, just the, the human nature, human condition. Yeah. That's an interesting counterpoint because if you think about Italians, they, they are very, proud of their Italian heritage based on where, and and I spent time in a uh, little island called Pantelleria, which is near Sicily, so a lot of Sicilian influence, right. and you get that. You, you see that they're very proud of that Sicilian heritage, uh, and that transfers when they come to America. You know, you, you talk to anyone who's an Italian-American, they'll tell you exactly where their family lived in, in Italy, and that shapes their entire worldview. So, sorry for going on a little bit of a tangent no, no, there. It's a really good question. I, you know, getting it back to Montez and Anna. So she's Puerto Rican by descent. Her father, she spent time living in Puerto Rico, uh, I think after her mother and father divorced. I want to say they divorced when she was in high school. Her father, I think, moved to Puerto Rico for a while. And she would go visit him. So, you know, you see when she gets out of prison, okay, I'm not going to my home in D.C. because I've long sold that. And, and my attorney, who's now dead, you know, he, he made a lot of money off the sale of my home. And where do I go? And I, she picked San Juan, Puerto Rico. And uh, I think she would I think she would self-identify as, as I'm Puerto Rican. And I've talked to other Puerto Ricans about this who are American. And they're like, there are a lot of, you know, folks that are Puerto Rican that see themselves as Puerto Ricans first and, and American second. And and maybe because of this, this inherent tension with, you know, whether Puerto Rico should be an independent country or Commonwealth. And like Anna's mother and father growing up, they disagreed on that, I don't say political issue, but father was very much in favor of Commonwealth status. And mother was very much into the Puerto Rican independence movement, obviously not as extreme with regards to taking matters into her own, own hands, like, I mean, espionage or Puerto Rican terrorists that that have done, you know, a lot of harm over the years to advance that political cause. But certainly Anna would see herself probably given where she chose to move to after being in prison, moving to Puerto Rico. I think she feels very much at home there. So is that, I having dealt with a lot of, not dealt with, but uh, a lot of Cuban Americans, I've talked to a lot of Cuban Americans. My kids have friends whose family uh, are Cuban Americans, you know, Southern Florida, that's where a lot of Cuban defectors end up. When you talk to a Cuban American, a lot of the times they are are very, they're not supportive of the socialist or communist ideology. They they do not. So do you think that plays a part because Ana Montes was not, she, she did not grow up in Cuba, that if she had grown up in Cuba and the family immigrated to America, she might've had a different worldview. That's a really good question. Like what if she was, instead of being Puerto Rican, if she was Cuban, I don't know that I've met and I've met 
quite a few Cuban Americans over the years. I've worked with them. Elena in my book, who's the NSA analyst, I still keep in touch with her. You know, born and raised in Cuba, came here at six. Anna Maria Mendoza, who was our headquarters boss, Cuban American, she was a partner, a peer of ours on the squad. And then she promoted, became our program manager, Cuban American. They are, they are staunchly, uh, number one, proud Americans and identified as Americans primarily. And then are very anti socialism, anti communism. They've seen, and just the guys I've talked to down in South Florida, I did a, a little bit of a book tour down there, I talked to quite a few people, some media folks and some folks that came out for a book event. And man, they, 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 they're very passionate people. They're very strong. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't have any reservations about how, how socialism and Marxism and communism just don't work. And I think, you know, some of the more, more staunch folks, two of the guys I interviewed for the book that defected, they were former Cuban intelligence officers. So these guys were part of the state, part of the regime, part of and, and part of the upper class. I mean, they lived better than your typical Cuban. And they are just staunchly capitalist. Yes. For, you know, I mean, like, to, to, an, to, to an extreme. And, um, you know, these were guys that were, because they see the corruption. They see, they see the bullshit. They see the lies. They were, they were a part of it to a degree. And they saw through it. They saw how Castro was traveling with his with his bed, you know, his own bed from his house. He would travel overseas, and he, they would they would spend all this money. And your typical Cuban was was starving. And they saw they saw firsthand the bullshit, and 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 therefore their their views and ideology go completely opposite to that. And then I think there's something else to be said about because uh, we had talked about this before recording that you know I spent time in Poland. And Poland was, you know, part of Russia. It was a, a Soviet area. And when we talked to people within Poland, older Polish people who had been through it, who, who were part of the Soviet Union, they were staunchly against socialism and communism and the Soviet Union. However, two generations from that, so the kids that we were talking to during that mission were very supportive of communism mm. slash socialism. And so they had they were two generations removed yeah. from having been involved in it. But what they see is how the a perfect union of socialism would benefit all the people without understanding the corruption. And I just say that just to to put out a point maybe you've seen the same thing with that but getting back to to Ana Montes you know saying if she had been in Cuba and then defected it might have been different but if her family was Cuban and two generations down the line yeah. she's in America she might have had the exact same ideology yeah could have i think i think that she was and this is where i go back to i think you you're helping me solidify my 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 thought like it's my opinion you know, I don't whether Otto would agree with me or not. So probably we agree on very little. This may come as, <laughs> but but I you know I think I think this is this cements why she's she's even more anti-American, and in than pro-Cuba. Like she really, really wanted to 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 
level the playing field and get back at the United States. And in my mind, Cuba was a conduit to that disgruntlement and that anger. And, and, and it has to be hatred. It has to be hatred. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, I, there's a whole, that whole, what's it, born on the 4th of July, love it or hate it, you know, Vietnam, yeah. Tom Cruise. And, and, you know, I think she hates our country, really genuinely believes that she hates our country and, and fails to see the, the things that we have done. Yeah, that we made mistakes over over the course of 250 years. Of course, we're not a perfect union by, by any stretch, but she just really hates the United States and that's what she focuses on. So that's her her main main motivation. And and because we look at you know the whole there's the whole mice acronym, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. I don't know if I agree with with all those four. I think all those people can have a degree of ego. There's always layers of reasons why. It's not just Bob Hansen, I want to, I want to be rich. I'm going right. to write espionage for money. Nah, there's a whole lot of personality disorders there that contribute to, and it's money. But, he, but you look at it in these nice little neat compartments and buckets, and the best one she fits into is ideology. But it's it's kind of it's deeper than that. Yeah, and that's a it was an interesting take from you, um, in, in listening to what you said because uh, you know, having gone through the courses and and understanding who she is and understanding that she didn't take as far as I know, maybe you've seen otherwise. And like I said, I haven't read the book yet. I will read the book, and I do encourage everyone to read Queen of Cuba. It comes, you know, highly rated and and regarded in people that I know, but she didn't take any money. Right. And that's right. usually like Robert Hansen, like you said, he wanted to be rich. He took tons of money. And even people who were ideologically opposed to the United States still took some money. It wasn't a lot, you know, maybe tens of thousands over a few years. From what I know, she didn't take anything. Told Steve and I, I would have been offended. Like she would emphasize the offended. I would have been offended. I can almost, I'm almost in the room again, 22 years ago. Uh, I would have been offended if the Cubans gave me money. Wow. It just like, which is, yeah, wow. Like, you know, yes, she got paid for operational expenses. They bought her laptop computer. They bought her a car because, and it wasn't a Jaguar. It wasn't, it was a Toyota Echo. It was a POS. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can't see, your audience can't see this, but I'm making a most circular motion with my arm, meaning that's how you got the windows down. You roll down the windows, old school. And another acronym, which I, I will say, yeah, piece of shit, right? That's piece of shit. Sure. There you go. <laughs> um, it is. It is. Wow. I don't even, air conditioning barely. And, right. uh, but it was an operational expense because her vision before she met the, the Cubans, uh, she was living in D.C., didn't have a car, was going to finish her master's degree and then go work at Amnesty International and take the Metro. Didn't need a car. But going to right. Pauline Air Force Base in in uh, in South D.C., you, you, you know, the Metro is not very convenient and it's a lot of walking and not very safe. So she's like, I need a car because that's where I'm going to go work. And they paid her car payment, which was very modest, and her car insurance. So... Yeah, I mean... Which goes back to the ideology, right? It's like, I guess in her mind, she's thinking, I'm 
I can't take money from the Cuban people. No, I wouldn't do, you know, that I think, yeah, she talks as she thinks about the Cuban people and I think it's bullshit. Awesome. Yeah, let's it's get into bullshit. that. <laughs> I mean, because you, you're not helping the Cuban people and, and she's smart enough to know that. You know, she studied the Cuban government from 1992 until she was arrested. The first seven years, she was working El Salvador, Nicaragua. Uh, I'm sure she, because of the regional perspective, would 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 get to know Cuba. But when you you're file work into Cuba account, you're seeing the intelligence. You're you're studying the country, focusing on the military, but big picture. And she she had to know. That the regime was, you know, barely keeping the public alive because that is what kept them in power. So you're not helping the. It's it's almost blasphemy to say that you're helping the Cuban people by helping the, the Castro regime. So that goes back to what you were saying about just a hatred for the United States and yeah, and I think a calling. I think a call. It's a calling for her. It's it's so so and that and that fits into. Why 39 years of her life wasn't wasted, 17 years committing espionage and 22 years in prison. It wasn't a waste because I, I answered my calling. I, I, it, and, and she told us it would have been inhumane. She used the word inhumane of me not to have helped the cube. And, and so again, you know, it, it does, you, you know, you're, you're claiming you're helping the Cubans to a degree. But you're still getting back more the United States versus helping the Cubans. So there's there's a dual, you know, I think there's a dual motivation there. Like I don't know if Hansen would say I was trying to hurt the United States. You know, I mean he's I agree with that. Yeah. He, you know what he, I mean? Like he's it, and it, it's 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 hard it and that's why these these people are these people, Hansen Ames, Walker, Montez, Snowden. They're complicated people. They're very, it's it's not it's hard in the training that you refer to. Put on one slide, Anamantes and Bob Hanson. Yeah, because they they differ, you know. And it's deep, but it's deeper. It's deeper. Even if you gave Montez one slide, it's deeper than just the bullet points that you could put on a slide. That your training, don't be an Anamantes. You know, don't be a Bob Hanson. Hanson Hanson was you know staunchly conservative, you know, and uh, politically, and and you know. He, you know, I, from my understanding of him, was very much pro Reagan and pro, mm -hmm. you know, anti, you know, but like still committed espionage. I talked to one of the guys I talked to, the defectors I talked to. I don't remember if he was running a source or he knew of a source being run who was staunchly anti communist, staunchly, like staunchly conservative politically and was a staunch anti-communist and he spied for Castro because he he really he really uh relished the fact that Castro himself was reading his intelligence so there's the ego right right there's the, it's that's ego whether he got money or not I don't know but certainly wasn't ideologically aligned with Castro but like Man, Fidel Castro himself is reading my intelligence. So I'm gonna, even though I don't believe in communism and Marxism and all that stuff, I'm gonna commit espionage. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah, and and it is. And so I I, I want to kind of get into the investigation 
because the investigation started in 1996. And spoiler alert for everybody, she's arrested, you know, <laughs> 10 days after 9-11. So, two, it's, hard, so it's, it's hard to bury that. It's hard to keep that one a secret. Like, hey, I'm not going to tell you yeah. she comes out when her mugshot's on, you know, half of her face from the mugshot is on the cover of the book. Right. It's like it's like watching Titanic and going, hey, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> <that> shit, thanks. <laughs> People die. But yeah, the investigation starts in, in 96. Uh, can you kind of detail what what happened in that? Because you, on on our geopolitical podcast, I talk a lot about within intelligence, having a gut feeling and using your gut to kind of just kind of figure out maybe what's going on. And that's kind of what happened here, right? The, the FBI doesn't go with gut feelings a lot. We go with, we, <laughs> we're very much on the facts. You know, there's that old two, two, two white guys, frankly, in fedoras from the 1950s, some movie. Just the facts, you know, a woman they're interviewing as a witness is giving her opinion. It's like, ma'am, just the facts, just the facts, man. It becomes right. kind of a tagline. Uh, and, but it's very much the FBI. Our FBI is very much about facts. And so we had, we had, we had three individuals I write about in the chapter called Runaway. So I'm most the, the chapter I'm most proud about is is this chapter called Runaway because it talks about two different sets of defectors who the the the, the one who defected in 1980 well late 80s had a very very he he had heard that the, the Cubans had been successful in recruiting two women which of course now is Ana Montes and Martin Velasquez but back then I mean you might as well just say you know, the, he found out that the Cubans were successful in recruiting two Americans. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. okay. 330 well, million people. Exactly. Let's, let's whittle know, that right? it down. They recruited two women. Okay, well, that's maybe, what, 150 million, 170 million? I don't know. Like, that, that's a really narrow thing down. The the three main, two main defectors, the third guy was arrested before he was able to the Spent 20 years in a Cuban prison. All th the, the remarkableness about this is that all three of them worked together in Havana in the Cuban intelligence headquarters building. And all three knew what they were doing. They were a network. One was looking over the other guy's shoulder, and this guy would steal this, and that guy would steal that. Um, and then they provide that intelligence on island to the U.S. intelligence community. And this is uh, sometime before 1994. Uh, the, the summer of 94 is when two of the three escape on a raft. And, and the, the the journey it took them to get to the United States is dramatic. Like, I'm not trying to oversell this. It, it, it is literally what I'm so proud about is capturing their stories about how they got to the United States. And and they provide the, the initial tidbits that there are a lot of, of penetrations. There are a lot of Cuban... Uh, sources in the United States, both illegal officers, which are Cuban intelligence officers here illegally, like the Loretta Vispa folks that were arrested in Miami, um, like the people that were handling Anamantas here in the United States and later Kendall Myers, but also a lot of penetration agents like Montez and Marta and Myers. And I presume, I don't know definitively, but I'm going to guess Ambassador Roca. So we knew we knew we had some problems in 1994, and then though that knowledge leads to the Miami investigations, and during the course of the investigation, while it's still covert, 
those guys were arrested in September 1998. And the FBI was doing black bag jobs to get into the homes of the illegal officers in Miami. And what they got was key, decryption key. The key is, you know, think of what, you know, this is, this is spy shit, right? James Bond, you know, you're, you're, you got a floppy disk with Cuban generated decryption software on it. And if you know the frequency and the day of the week, you, if you had that key, you could listen in and decrypt the same message that these people are listening to. And we were able to do that in Miami. Getting that key opened the window to being able, us being able to read Anna's illegal officers' encrypted messages from, from 1996 and 1997. And maybe my memory is vague. I think it's maybe 20 to 30 messages, but that becomes huge because it's it's a little closer in time and by that point in time it's only three or four years old um it was it was mad i wrote this it's maddeningly maddeningly vague really tough i mean we knew a specific computer purchase in a town called alexandria but didn't know the state didn't know the store didn't know who made the purchase um impossible for us to to okay identify everyone in the dc area presumably because i mean there's a there's a town called alexandria just outside of dc and we know that dc is the heart of the target for castro at the time and and so the reasonable deduction was we're talking about alexandria virginia but all these different mom and pop shops like that aren't even in business you know in 2000 2001 do we do we um how do we get how do we get the fatality of the people that bought that specific computer? But that, that that's the critical piece of information that comes in. It's a direct result of the Miami cases, which is a direct result of uh, the, the 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 three guys who provided us that intelligence up till 1994, two of which who escaped, and one of which unfortunately was arrested. And now has been he's been released. He was released in 2014. Oh. All right. Full disclosure: we we had a little bit of uh, maybe. I always say it's the Russians trying to attack. <laughs> There's the Cubans. Time. <laughs> we don't know. Well, so we'll, we'll figure this out. But what I wanted to ask was, in '96, the investigation starts. Two thousand. So ten days after 9/11, she's arrested. At what point in between that was there enough to arrest? Ana Montes, and what went into the decision to hold off on that? So I got I got to truncate a little bit of the story before we jump to you know kind of that that final chapter, if you will. So in in um, the FBI, NSA, and another government agency had been collaborating in a team team type environment, loosely loose team for a number of years, trying to look at all of these problems, the a lot of cases. Um, the FBI alone, FBI New York, FBI you know Washington Field, Miami, Newark, and FBI headquarters were, were the majority of the offices in the Cuban program that were working on these a lot of cases. And the government asked me not to say how many there were, but I italicize in the book a lot because- right. A lot of people think it's like it's like one case. Like, what took you so long? Well, we had a shitload of cases. Sorry, we have a lot of cases together. Okay. Not one stood out more as more important than the other. Right. So, in October, well, September, September two thousand, Elena, who's an analyst at NSA, 
who is a good friend of mine, and I have a great relationship with her. Um, outside of the school, I, I I was not working the, we call them the unsub case, the unknown subject. I wasn't gotcha. working the unsub case that later became, soon be became identified as Alamantes. Steve McCoy was working that. And, and Elena misunderstood a conversation she had with FBI headquarters. To her, it sounded like the case had been closed. And that the FBI wasn't working anymore, which was not true. She then decided to take matters in her own her own hands. And if you know, going back to that that conversation about you know Cubans and how passionate they are, how anti. I mean, you know, I was working Cuba. Steve was working Cuba. All of our peers were working Cuba. It was important. I was born in Camden, New Jersey. Right for for Elena, who was born in Cuba. It was the reason she got out of bed every morning. That was her why. Like mm-hmm. that, that's the level of passion that she had about trying to get back at the regime. And I'm not saying that, you know, I that wasn't my why, but for me it was different. For her, it was personal. And she took so so tenaciously, she went and, and reached out to some folks at, at DIA and tried to identify agencies that were a part of a meeting that the 1996 and 1997 information told us that the Cubans knew about. The, the, Elena has gotten a lot of credit, and I gave her her right, rightful credit as to kind of breaking the case. And she deserves it. You know, one author, or I won't name, described her as a hero. And, and, you know, it's a little embellishment, but okay. The hero, air quotes around, also called Ana Montes. He's trying to track down this tidbit, which is a which is re- and, and got her voicemail. Now, now, did it innocently? Had never heard the name on Montez before. Didn't pull Anna's security file and say, "Well, let's make sure Anna's not the unsub we're looking for." Literally trying to make a break. And if if if, but the thing is, Anna. This is after the guys in Miami had been arrested, so Anna's anxiety level was already through the roof. Unbeknownst to anyone, right? Of course, uh, Anna's the only one that knows that she's she's really stressed out because if they're on to them, maybe they're on to me. And uh, Elena got her voicemail, thankfully, and didn't leave a voice message. And that's how close we could have been to blowing the investigation before Anna became a suspect. And and before Anna's name was even known to the FBI as a possible suspect. Elena meets with DIA. They see the information we've all been looking at. They say, we think this is us, and we think this might be Ana Montes. And then Scott Carmichael, you know, very, very judiciously took another piece of the tidbit, ran through the database, and within about 15 minutes came up with the name Ana B. Montes as the prime suspect. It did literally happen that quickly. When the right person heard the right information, dug into the right records, magic happened. Lucky break. Huge. That's not the end of the story. If if the only thing that happens is that, no one would ever hear the name Alamantes because there was enough information at that point in time to fire Anna. DIA would have been fully in their rights and justified terminating Anna for a variety of different security type issues. But that's not the goal. So the FBI gets the name Alamantes. There was a, a degree of skepticism for about six weeks. I don't consider that a whole long period of time in the course of 17 years. We open an investigation on her. We build the investigation. We get into her apartment 
in uh, Friday of Memorial Day weekend of 2001. And this is, this is when, you, when you ask the question, you know, what becomes the key? It's, it's what we get off of her computer. And Anna knows this. And it, it tortured her, I'm sure, every night for 22 years. And probably to this day, she knows how damaging that computer and what she thought was deleted on it, but wasn't. She knows that that is the reason she spent one night in prison. So in theory, we had enough to arrest her Memorial Day weekend, maybe a couple of weeks later, once we finally got the data off the computer. But pre-9-11, the FBI agents weren't allowed to encounter intelligence cases because of Jake Rahura's history and Dr. Kane's mm-hmm. encounter Intel Pro, Co-Intel Pro. It was a very, very dark history in our nation's history and in the FBI's history. And I talk about it in the book. I'm very candid about, you know, Hoover's illegal surveillance of a whole lot of folks. We we were looking to catch her in the act of committing espionage. We were looking to catch her in the act of meeting with a Cuban illegal officer. And our philosophy was if we could get her meeting with Ernesto or whoever was handling her at the time, we identify Ernesto, we follow Ernesto, we identify him, he leads us to more animata. And that was our that was our investigative philosophy. And and it it in hindsight is a little it's a little narrow minded. The reality is a person like Anna, the stature, her relevance to Cuban intelligence, her her security needs. Ernesto was handling here in the United States, illegally handling one person. There's no well, I, on Tuesday I gotta meet with Anna and on Wednesday I have to meet with Julia. Well on Thursday I you know He's not a multiple date guy. He's got one date. He and Anna are going steady, and that's it. So it wouldn't have led us to another Anna Montes. It would have identified the legal okay, which is which is important, but it's not. It would not have. Our philosophy was a little, a little narrow minded. But pre nine eleven, agents weren't allowed in counterintelligence to talk to local prosecutors. A lot of hurdles to go through, and rightfully so because of what happened in the bureau's history and therefore we couldn't just go talk you know, down the, i mean I, every day steve and i would pass right next door to the washington field office is the u.s attorney's office it's like right mm-hmm. next door yeah i i would have to go the, the judiciary square metro you could go either through the national law enforcement museum there's an entrance there you really walk past the u.s attorney's office was i allowed to go in turn left instead of going on the metro and say, hey, I need to talk to a prosecutor because I have, I have a counterintelligence case and I want to see what somebody thinks. Couldn't do it. So 9-11 spurs that. Um, DIA lost patience, frankly, and and I understand why. And they put the uh, they put the bureau on notice. We were told, the DIA director said, you got till Friday, September 21st to arrest her or she will be fired. And, and thankfully, we had enough probable cause by that point in time to to make the arrest. And that's why she was going to be put on a battle damage assessment team uh, in, in regards to Afghanistan and DIA had said, rightfully so, enough's enough. This is it, is I think what the director said, the director of DIA. Right. So that was because, uh, from what I understand, she would have been privy to military movements within Afghanistan uh, that she could then give to Cuba. We don't know if she would have done that, um, if that was part of her ideology. 
So I think that's a, that's an interesting point to make. Yeah, I can okay. tell you what she told us, but um, yeah, you know, and it's 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 when you think of the intelligence cycle and how long it takes, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, she would have given, she was in a position to have access to what we were doing in Afghanistan. Okay. But now she has to get that intelligence to the legal, who's got to get it to the human mission in New York, who's got to get it to Havana, who's then got to get it over to Afghanistan or, you know, through it. It's not just once she gets it, it's automatically transmitted to the Taliban, right? So a lot of layers there. Um, but, but the risk calculation is certainly more than enough that, that there was no appetite to risk one soldier marine airman's life sailor's life in in afghanistan and and i i completely agree with that decision yeah i I would agree with that as well and and then knowing that i believe you can correct me if i'm wrong but I, i believe that we we don't know if some of the stuff that she's that she gave about nicaragua and el salvador led to the death of a military member it, it could have, but I believe that she said that if that was true, you know, that's part, you know, that's just part of the mission. That's just what happens. Part of his riff. Yeah. Right. She doesn't remember his name, didn't remember doing it. We had substantial, you know, circumstantial, I wouldn't say evidence. Um, it would have been negligent for either of them not to have met before he went downrange. Right definitely negligent on his part and i do believe i believe she was actually in el salvador when he was in el salvador a couple months before the ambush you know does two and two two plus two equal four we'll never know but you know the callousness of her just shows you where she at. like she doesn't care and I, and again you know so take him out of the picture let's say let's say she didn't you know back to your afghanistan um situation she told us point blank that if if anyone died in Afghanistan as a result of her intelligence after 9-11 after we've had time you know this is not this was not one of these you know adventures you know American adventures where we're just going to invade another country just for the hell of it right as you know we are we are going to bring justice to people that murdered 3,000 Americans uh, there's you know maybe some people will debate the moralness of that but there's a small group Right. And she, right. at that point, said, we we knew or believed yeah. that Afghanistan was harboring, um, you know, okay. harboring a, a criminal. They we, you know, find out later that he's in Pakistan, all that kind of stuff. But at that point, it was Afghanistan and Al Qaeda that's, you know, has safe passage through there. So, yeah, directly involved in the murder of thousands of people within the United States. So, you know, her attitude was, if I give them intelligence that leads to one of their deaths, that's the risk they took. Right. And, and that, to me, I go back to the, un- that's un-American. That's un-American. You can, you can agree or disagree with policy with regards to Puerto Rico and Cuba and all, you know, all these different things. But, you know, this is, after 9-11, I mean, we remember that time frame. You know, everyone was flying an American flag. And there was no, yeah. we, we were as united as a country between Democrats and Republicans we've ever been. There was there was very little ambiguity about you know the descent of not going in, of going into Afghanistan was you know from a very small group of people and uh, so that's that's why I wrote the book I want people to know who she really is and that's what she would have done if she had not been arrested that's what that's that's 
that's just who she is. And, you know, there are Puerto Ricans who are in the military who would be in harm's way of Ana Montes if she's not arrested, that she's fighting for, you know, arguing for, you know, trying to further their cause, getting awards from. She got an award recently. There's a Facebook posting that uh, I wouldn't say it's gone viral, but it definitely, she uh, got an award, I think, before the new year from a uh, Puerto Rican human rights group for her espionage. Wow. My, how the world has changed since since 9-11. Now we have people that are praising Osama bin Laden and his letter to America. Um, We've really come full circle on that one. Or maybe that's not the right terminology to use full circle but we we've just kind of we did say at some point never forget and i do believe some people have forgotten yeah and i agree i i want to say everybody who's listening if you think you've heard the whole story of anna montez you have not get the book queen of cuba read it get the whole the whole story might change your worldview on a lot of things uh maybe it'll solidify your worldview and peter i wanted to to talk more about you know Russia and China and that kind of thing where we're kind of up on time here I, I would ask maybe uh, in a couple of months if you wanted to come back on and discuss sort of what's you know Russian and Chinese espionage from your time in you did yeah, you did espionage and counterintelligence directly involving with with Chinese espionage you said you did a little bit with Russia so I think you have this sort of background that is fascinating and that's why we could talk for over an hour now just on one topic because you do have so much so much knowledge of the history of all this and so i'd also be remiss if i didn't say hey uh shout out to mike leon who who set this up and said that i should have you on he's exactly right i'm gonna email him right after this and see who else he might know of because he was spot on on this guest i think we get a lot of good information about this. Um, but, but as we're up on time, I do want to give you just a few minutes to plug anything. You could uh, keep plugging the book, but if there's anything else that, that you're doing or you have future endeavors that you want to put out there, I want to give you as much time as you want right now to just put that out. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So, so Mike, you know, think, speaking of Mike, Mike's a good mutual friend. Can we please talk? Is his podcast. I've been on uh, a couple times, and I think I'm going to be on uh, his podcast coming up in a, in a two weeks or so. So definitely check out his podcast in addition to yours, obviously. But your audience is already checking out your podcast. Um, I, you know, the book is really the only thing I'm promoting right now. Um, there, there is in the works a major news magazine television segment that will air perhaps Sundays after football. Wrong. Wow. And, and uh, I kind of get a hint not, of what you're, you're talking not, about there. Yeah, <laughs> not not, not going to, you know, um, not going to release too much. You know, we, we were touch and go. I think we're, we're definitely, we're definitely a go by this point in time. We just don't know when it's going to air. Right. And uh, that will be, I think really, uh, really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things with the book I wanted to do, I I tried to not be judgmental of her. I, I it's it, and I tried to be a little more open minded and let the reader come to their own conclusion. And and I, I, it was hard. 
don't get me wrong, because I, I had very strong opinions about her. And I think towards the end, I kind of get into, you know, that I did hate her. I did, it, I, I did hate her, especially with regards to Afghanistan. And now I've gotten to a point where I, I hate the sin. I don't hate the sinner. Right. But I, but I wrote in the book a dual narrative in the way where I talk about myself. And, and I didn't do that from a, a memoir or egotistical way. I wanted to get the reader to get to know a typical FBI agent. Because frankly, since 2016, um, the Bureau has been crucified in a uh-huh. lot of different sections and, and, and quarters. And I, and I wanted to say, okay, well, let, me, let me tell you what a typical FBI agent looks, looks like and, and works like and lives like. And we all have like kids and families and like, or we're trying to make families and raise families and, and, and cut our grass. You know, it's like, you know, there's not just what you see on Twitter or X or in, in, in certain news. It's like they're, they're human beings behind your typical FBI employee, not just an FBI agent. So I wanted to humanize them to a degree. So that's why, and, and a lot of people will read the book and say, yeah, she, she actually do. She's a hero and, and the FBI is a villain's. And, and a lot of people will say, no, she's the villain and you guys are heroes. And it's not, I didn't want to like, I wanted to let the reader come to their own conclusion. Certainly I have an opinion, but I hope that that was, that was uh, communicated, you know, through the book. And, and I'm sure her supporters will read it if they choose to and, and crucify me. And so far I haven't seen those reviews, but <laughs> you know, I'm open to having that. Well, don't read them if you do see don't read <laughs> yeah don't don't read the comments that's what i that's what i like to say that's what my wife tells me a lot of times <laughs> you know we post a lot of things on instagram and stuff like that and working within the intelligence community i'm glad you brought that up not to i, I, I wanted to give you time to plug all of your stuff now i'll take a little bit of time to just say that i've noticed the same thing you have you know since 2016 a lot of agencies have been vilified by the same people that really promoted those agencies before 2016 for for various reasons that we won't get into here. But, you know, I, I had a chance to speak with Andrew Yang, former Democratic presidential candidate, uh, now trying to start his own party about because I'm in the intelligence community. I'm very passionate about the intelligence community. I think that the intelligence community needs to be unbiased, un, you know, yep. apolitical. And we've lost that a little bit. And with that, we've kind of also lost this this praise, this this kind of awe that a lot of people had with the intelligence community because things have become political. But it's be it's become political for top, you know, political people within those agencies, people who are looking to become a senator or even a presidential candidate. Uh, but like you said, and, and I'm very grateful for you to say that, that there are people like yourself, like myself, we just have families or, or we we have are trying to start a family and we're not really looking at the political side. We don't care, right? you right. know, who the president is at the time, not to say it doesn't matter to us, but it's like that's not our everyday being. We're, we're not going hey, this one, I don't like this presidential candidate on a personal level, so let me just attack that person. I can tell you from my experience, and I, I didn't work in the CIA, but I've worked special operations with intelligence, uh, army intelligence, and then you working with the FBI, I'm sure you could say the exact same thing. 
on a personal level, I never said anything about the president of the United States. It, it just was not something that affected me. My, I was in the global war on terrorism. My entire career was bringing the fight to terrorists. And that I cared about. I didn't care about the political spectrum. Yeah, it's well said. I, I you know, I, I think I would, I've said this before publicly where, you know, you drive to work in your car and you're listening to WTOP or you're listening to whatever you listen to. And, you know, you, of course, those of us that have clearances are politically minded. We have a worldview. We yep. vote a certain way. Sometimes we vote a certain way and then we vote the other way. I mean, right. who knows? And it, but like when, when you got to the office, you had your coffee in your hand, your badge in, you opened the door. All that went away because it really was a political free zone. Of course, there were times when someone would say something and you got a you got a window into ah, I feel like I know kind of where that person you know, their worldviews, but it just didn't matter. I mean, at the FBI, it was again just the facts. Who, what, when, yep. where, and why. And if you can meet the facts, and, and that, you know. Not to say that the FBI is a perfect institution. It's not. CIA is not a perfect institution. The, there are, there are, that does not exist. It's far better today than it was. You know, I compare it to the pre-church committee era, and I'd rather have this FBI than that FBI. I'd rather have this CIA than that CIA. And it's just a bunch of hardworking men and women who really don't give a shit about they just go to do their job and they're, they're honored to be public servants, you know, serving the American people in ways that try to make our world and our country a little bit safer. And that's where I don't want to get to a position where people are afraid to go into the FBI because they're afraid the FBI won't even be around in 2025. You know what I mean? Like, like, right. There's applicants right now that are probably thinking, is it going to be around if, or, or what? And, and am I going to enjoy that job? And then we've got folks that aren't as um, qualified coming in because the other folks that would make excellent FBI agents or excellent FBI analysts are going to work for, you know, whatever, not, not working at the FBI. So, you know, that, that's been something I've been very, cognizant of and passionate about and and obviously that relates to the other members of the intelligence community and and the dod at large so you know we'll see we'll see but you know i was worried after 9 11 about cutting my grass and getting it cut because there were like days where i just and i'm being you know it's a small little anecdote but like no that's 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 kind of what we do you know i had, I had a three-week-old kid on september 21st and my grass was like up to up to here and you know it was just you just trying to do your job like i didn't really give a shit who the president was like, yeah it made no it was not a factor i mean obviously i watched george bush's you know address to congress and we're gonna take our you know all that i watched but it wasn't like i was like yeah go george bush like, yeah, yeah i'm not gonna america. vote for anybody else but george bush and george go bush america. is gonna be the president for forever go america right right I mean, you know let's go america let's 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 go let's go do what we have to do and that continued in my career you know until i retired and even to this day like i don't express my political views at, at work it just the fbi never paid me for my political views thank god because they're not very like 
well sounded. <laughs> not, I, I agree with you as well. Like I'm, I probably stay out of politics because I'm not articulate enough in politics to explain my own worldview, which I said in the intelligence community, you try. It's good not to be articulate about your worldview because you, you can look past it. There you go. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on, coming on the podcast. Queen of Cuba is the book. Go out and get it. You can get it on Amazon. Is Are there any bookstores that are plugging it right now? No, not really. Amazon's your best place to get it. Uh, gotcha. You can get it through the Barnes & Noble's website or Target website, but but Amazon, um, and I think they just lower the price just a little bit, so it's even more economical. Um, if people want to reach out to me, um, PeteLapp.com, um, can, you can get a hold of me through there, and I'm happy to uh, you know get you a signed copy. Yeah, you got to pay for it, obviously, but right. we'll we'll get you a signed copy if you, if you want one. That's uh, pretty easy. So, and then after that, but after that news news channel segment thing hits, hopefully, I won't have the bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, so gonna... so this will this will be coming out January seventh. Um, it's quick turnaround. Oh, oh, your pod, your pod. Okay. Yes. Um, got it. It's so... quick turnaround here. So Good. so what you're you're hearing now, get it now. If you really get want to read now, the book, because, yeah, get it now. If, it, if the demand goes when that news thing hits, then then. Uh, but the Roca, the Roca case, I think changed changed the uh, the scope of of the segment, which I'm I'm all in favor of. I mean, anytime we can highlight Cuban intelligence and their their successes and how vulnerable we are, how much of a challenge they are, I think that's good for national security. So so hats off to them for being patient and waiting for, you know, recovering, uh, adding this to, to that conversation. Right. And anyone who's living under a rock and doesn't know what the, the Roka case is, the Senator, U S Senator, um, was he part of the Senate intelligence? No. So that's, that's been, you're thinking about Menendez. Yeah. Menendez. Yeah. yeah. Senator Roka was arrested as being foreign agent. They were both arrested for the same, same charges, but, but Roka, former state department ambassador, U S ambassador. That's it. Got it was arrested and i think he's got a he's got a court date heading i want to say january 12th so we'll see if there's an announcement of a plea or if it's just kind of another typical court hearing but i'm i'm suspecting that there hopefully will be a plea coming in that uh, that's my hope because both sides have, have value in talking all right yeah, we'll, we'll see well see. once again thank you so much and like i said We'll, we can get into the the Roka case. We can get into all of that. Um, I'd love to have you on again if, if you're up for it. Uh, if you're not up for it, just tell me offline. Yeah, <laughs> didn't like this episode, and you don't want it released. <laughs> I will be on record as saying I'm happy to come back and and have another conversation. Awesome. Anytime, anytime it's convenient for both of us, happy to enjoy this. Sounds great. Uh, once again, you know, it's Peter Lap, Queen of Cuba. Get the book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoy it.